Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. And this project is to work through the entire Bible together, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You're joining us midway through season six, which is the Gospel of Mark. We're working through the whole Bible, doing alternate books of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. And this project should take, Lord willing, around about 10 years, and we're two and a half years into it. You're free to approach it at whatever pace suits you. New episodes are usually posted Monday to Friday every week, and you can just pick up today where you've dropped in if you like. You can go back to the beginning of this season, or even consider going right back to the start and working through the entire series at the pace that suits you. But if you are here for the first day, just click on the subscribe button on whatever your favourite podcast platform is, and that way you need never miss another single episode. And if you are here for the first time today, then please hang around at the end where I'll tell you ways which you can connect to this ministry and receive the free additional teaching resources I make available in various places. So with that said, I'll say bye-bye for now. I'll see you at the end and join us as we drop into Mark chapter 5, picking off where we left off, picking up where we left off yesterday at verse 21. Okay, friends, here we are again today. We're in episode 12, I think it is, of the Gospel of Mark, and we're picking up halfway through Mark chapter 5. And the question I'm asking today is that of, is God too busy for you? Now, more than one occasion, I've heard people say, how can God be in more than one place at one time? That's a sort of an objection some people raise who perhaps aren't believers. Now, I don't often hear believers ask questions as that, but on occasion, I have heard Christian believers imply that God doesn't have time for them. Now, maybe they don't put it that way in such a controversial way. Maybe they say something that sounds really humble, like, there's no need to pray for me. You don't need to trouble God with my insignificant problems. He's got better things to do. He's got the whole world and all its troubles to look after. I have to be honest and say I've heard that type of thing on quite a few occasions in my life. And maybe that's the question I'd like to ask you to consider yourself. Have you ever felt that way or expressed that thoughts of that kind, even if you haven't said it? Maybe you've been in a place where, yeah, you acknowledge that God is great. Maybe you're in that place today, but you feel that you shouldn't really bother him because basically you think your problems are insignificant compared to the state of the world. Well, I would like to speak into that perspective today because there is something that happened in Christ's life as he walked on the earth illustrates, that vividly illustrates a response, his response to that way of thinking. Now, it's an interesting section of scripture we're looking at this morning, no less because it starts by telling us a story about someone described as the ruler of the local synagogue and and a scenario about his sick and dying daughter But then suddenly, in the middle of this interesting story narrative, there's a sudden interruption by the literal intrusion of an old woman into the proceeding. An elderly woman pushes her way through the crowd, pushes her way into the middle of the story, old woman who's suffering from uncontrollable bleeding. And then the text has to take a break and explain what happens then. 
and then the story returns and it finishes dealing with the dying daughter of this ruler of the synagogue. So it actually quite naturally folds into three parts today's story. So let's begin and work through it as we do verse by verse and begin with the opening of the story and tells us about this guy described as the ruler of the synagogue. Now remember, Jesus has just crossed the Sea of Galilee again. He's now back on the west side of the lake, and it tells us that when he got there, a great crowd have gathered. Now, if you've been with us, if we've gone through this whole chapter, you can't help but notice that, well, yesterday we were on the other side of the lake, in the Gadarenes, and that group of people told him to get out of town, to get out of there, to go home, and now he's back on the west side, and the crowds are flocking round him again. What a contrast. I'm not going to deal with that today, but we'll try and explain that a little bit later as we work through this account. But here he is back in the west side and once again he finds himself surrounded by a large crowd of people pressing in on him, all trying to get his attention. But we see that there is this guy, an important guy in that local community. He's described as being the ruler of the synagogue. And we're told in verse 23, he comes to Jesus and he pleads with him. Well, let me read from the text. He says this, starting in verse 21. Now, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him. I've already commented on that. And he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her that she might be healed and she may live. And then the very next verse says, So Jesus went with him and a large crowd followed and pressed around him. Now that's important. We'll see why later in this passage. But I just want to pause here for a moment because this is where we have this first break in the passage where this we've seen this ruler simply come, this guy, important guy, the ruler of the synagogue, the main man, in the local synagogue, he's come and he simply asked Jesus to, well, to heal his dying daughter. But now the continuation of the story is, it's put on hold by simply telling us that the crowd throng in, as it says in the King James. Other translations talk about everyone pressing in on him from every side. Well, let's see how the story progresses. Now, a certain woman who had had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from the many physicians, she had spent all she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. So that's the situation of this lady. This lady has a problem, a very serious problem, and for all sorts of reasons, because this isn't just the tragic physical situation we're talking about here, but socially she's got a big problem as well. The physical problem is pretty obvious. She's suffering from continual bleeding. But the social problem was the fact that according to the Mosaic law, a woman who was bleeding was always ceremonially unclean. And if anyone touched her, they too automatically became ceremonially unclean. So I don't want you to miss the fact that these two seemingly separate narratives are pulled together here I believe primarily to show the massive contrast between the people that Jesus is interacting with on this day. In the first part of the chapter, we've had the ruler of the synagogue, the highly respected member of the community, the man 
who is in charge of maintaining the rules and regulations to ensure the community as a whole remains ceremonially clean. And then in juxtaposition to that, we have this woman who is a social outcast and who herself has been ceremonially unclean for at least 10 years because of this illness. Imagine having a chronic ailment that not only caused you considerable suffering, but made you by nature a social outcast in your community for over 12 years, we're told here. How could you not be discouraged? How could you not feel anything but hopeless? But even worse than that, the text tells us that she suffered at the hands of the doctors as well. It gets worse. She spent all her money on these doctors and she's no better. In fact, it says she got even worse. And after all the failure she's experienced with her illness and all the useless remedies and all the money she spent, things are no better. In fact, they're worse. It would be totally understandable if she felt hopeless. But then look what it says. She heard about Jesus and she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Now she'd no doubt probably heard that this guy was coming. He was said to be the Messiah and he was healing the sick. But there's also, I'm sure, an element within her thinking that thought, can I interrupt him? I can't interrupt him. He's in the middle of dealing with the ruler of the synagogue. I don't want to interrupt him. He's too busy with important people. He's surrounded by all these important people, including the local top guy. And I'm not important enough. He's too busy for me. But verse 27 says, although she feels that way, probably quite naturally, she doesn't leave it at that. She obviously thought, well, I'll not interrupt and speak to him but I do believe he can heal me I've heard what they say about him and if I can just get forward and touch the hem of his garment as he passes by then that will be enough so with a mustard seed of faith she makes her way through the crowd remember everyone she touches as she goes if they knew it they themselves would become ceremonially unclean and what does she do she touches Jesus and then it tells us this happened Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was free from her suffering. At once Jesus realised that power had gone out of him and he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? The disciples' response is, Who touched me? His disciples say, Look, you see the multitude thronging around you and you ask who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done this thing. But the woman Fear, in fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Now, people who know the Greek text say it says at this point, it says she told him everything, which means she told him what had happened, including the fact that he had just been healed and all the stuff that had happened to her in the past 12 years. And let we see now how Jesus responds to that. And he says... He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Now it's interesting to note that he called her daughter because at this point she did indeed become his daughter. Then he says to her, Your faith has made you well. Now the word translated well here could more accurately be translated as it is indeed in some versions of our Bible 
as your faith has restored you or your faith has saved you. So there's much more going on here than just this physical healing. Now let's pause to remember where we're up to here. Do you remember the ruler of the synagogue has come out and said, please, Jesus healed my daughter. But then the narrative has been interrupted by this old woman who's pressed through the crowd and touched his garment and been healed. And now the text is going to allow us to go back and continue to see what's going on with this ruler of the synagogue. It tells us that while he was still speaking, so probably at the close of dealing of this situation of healing the woman with the issue of blood, there's some people come from the ruler of the synagogue's house and say, in verse 33, your daughter is dead. Why trouble this teacher any further? Oh wow, it's too late. That's what he thought, probably what most people thought. There was never even a thought that anything could be done about this, that now she could be healed. It would never have entered the mind that he would raise someone, this girl, from the dead. But let's see his response, verses 35 and 36. As soon as Jesus heard the word that is spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not be afraid, only believe. So Jesus is saying to this man, I know how things look, but don't lose faith. Keep believing. And then it says, And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So here we see Jesus take with him his inner circle, so to speak. With him to see the daughter of Jairus, he takes Peter, James, and John. And then the text tells us, Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and he saw a great tumult there, and those who wept and wailed loudly. And when he came in, he said to them, Why make this commotion and weep? This child is not dead, but sleeping. So these people outside are beside themselves with grief, because the child has died. She really is dead. Their understanding is that she is dead. And we see Jesus' response to this situation, and he says this unusual thing, the child is not dead, but sleeping. So let me ask you a question. When Jesus said this, was she dead? Was she dead, dead? Or was she just sleeping? Dead or sleeping? I wish there was a way I could take a vote or ask you to show some hands. I'd be interested to know what you're thinking here. But let me categorically tell you the answer is this girl is dead. Dead, dead. Really dead. So naturally the question that rises out of that is then why does Jesus say she is sleeping? And that's a good question and a very important question and I need to answer it. And the answer is because in the New Testament the death of a believer in Jesus Christ, although recognised, yes, as 100% physical death, it is said to be no more than soul sleep for the internal soul of the believer. Do you get that? It's important. When we die in Christ, we are physically dead, but our souls simply sleep and wait. Remember when Lazarus died? We'll see that as well. He'd been entombed for four days. And the word Jesus used then on that occasion is exactly the same word that he's using here today. On both occasions, he says these people are asleep. Actually, as an aside, it's interesting to know that the literal translation of the Greek word cemetery means sleeping place from the Latin coematerium or the Greek comaterion. These terms just mean sleeping place, places of rest, places of soul sleep. 
for the Christian believer, from a spiritual soul point of view, it is simply our resting place. But the people standing around don't really get this. As many don't get this today, it actually testifies to that because it says in verses 40 and 41, they ridiculed him. So they ridiculed Jesus. But Jesus, it then says, let me continue to the text, but when he put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha kumai, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. So Jesus clears everyone out and takes the mum and the dad inside and takes her by the hand and speaks in Aramaic. Now, he speaks in Aramaic because, remember, Mark's writing his account into a Greek readership. So he's translating for us the actual words that Jesus said in the local dialect, which mean, little girl, I say to you, arise. And then the text finishes by telling us immediately the girl arose and walked for she was twelve years of age, and they were overcome with amazement, but he commanded them strictly that no one should know it, and said that they should simply give her something to eat. So what is all this about? What are all these miraculous events, these miracles, including the healing of the sick, and now the raising of the dead? What's it all about? Well, let me make a suggestion There's a lot more going on in these miraculous situations than just physical healings. I feel we need to pause for a minute and consider why, at all, Jesus did miracles in the first place. Now, if you've been listening carefully to me over these last few days and weeks, you noticed as we've progressed through the Gospel of Mark, well, I hope you've noticed that I flagged up that there are several different reasons why Jesus works miracles in particular situations, particularly the miracles of healings. One of the main reasons was his way of confirming who he was and authenticating his message, and that's still the same today. In fact, the Gospel of John, when describing these very same events, doesn't even use the word miracle in his description. He simply calls these events, these miraculous events like this, he calls them signs. So they are there to authenticate who he is and what he's saying. But another reason... A second reason he healed people was simply because when he looked upon people, he had compassion. He had the compassion of his Father God. Sometimes the text actually says that. Look at the miracle back in chapter 1, verse 41. But there's a third reason, and this one is a little more subtle. Sometimes he does a miraculous healing to communicate an important spiritual truth. Sometimes physical healings and miraculous healings beyond that, like the raising of the dead here, sometimes are meant to have an illustration over and above the first two reasons I give, because they're meant to be illustrations of the salvation of God. So in this event has a much wider spiritual truth than just the miraculous physical things occurring here. Did you notice, do you remember, just a few minutes ago I pointed out that Jesus called the old woman daughter? And he did that because at that point he did a lot more than just heal her physically. He spiritually adopted her at that time into the family of God. And furthermore, he added and said, once he'd done that, your faith is what saved you. Granted, he had saved her from the effect of the disease, 
But these words that he uses here in these situations, they also echo the spiritual salvation of the soul. The woman, she was not only healed, but the woman at that moment was made right with God. She was restored. She was saved. She became a child of God. And notice in both cases, both hers and this guy Jairus at the other end of the social spectrum, it was in both cases that their faith was the thing that made them well, made them right with God. Jesus is on his way to heal the dying daughter of a highly respected leader of civil society and he's stopped en route by a social outcast who has faith. And Jesus always will pause and pay attention to those who have faith. That's, I think, what this passage is drawing our attention to. So let me sum this up by making what I believe are some important observations. Putting all of this within the context of what has gone before, we have seen Jesus do a series of miraculous things. Jesus, in chapter 4, has calmed the storm, and he did that to demonstrate his power over nature. Then we saw him cast out demons, which demonstrate his power over the powers of evil. And now we see him heal the sick to demonstrate his power over sickness, both physical and spiritual. But now he finishes up here in this situation by raising the dead, which shows that Jesus has power over death itself. So within the whole context of what we've seen over these last few days, it's meant to demonstrate that Jesus has the power over nature, over the demonic realm, over disease, and even death. And that, to me, is the whole point of the way Mark presents his narrative account of the life of Jesus, to demonstrate that Jesus has the power over nature, over evil, over sickness, and even death. But he does that by using the great contrast here to show how that power is accessed. When he stilled the storm, the disciples had no faith. Remember they said, do you not care? They were not in a position of faith, but they were encouraged in their faith by what he did. When he cast out the demons, it tells us the people were afraid and literally asked him to leave. So the people in that region on the east side of the lake, they had no faith at all. But now, on the west side of the lake, where he cures a woman of an incurable disease, an old woman, and then he goes on to even raise a young girl from the dead, the people involved, both of them very different people, but they both had faith. These people believe. So the critical part of the story, I believe, is in recognising the contrast between this A on the one hand, this highly respected member of the society, and on the other hand, a socialised caste. She was a nobody, he was a big somebody. He had wealth, she was broke. He was important, she certainly felt unimportant, but the thing they had in common was their faith. So let me conclude by making this final point today, the final application that you can live this in your life. I started out this morning by saying that some people have this perspective where they think God's too busy for them. God doesn't have time for them. I'm not important enough for God to worry about me with all the problems in the world. It's not important enough to be asking about prayer. But friends, on the surface that might sound quite sweet and quite humble, but maybe that's just another way 
of saying, I don't believe God really cares about me. And I want to conclude today by telling you that yes, he does. That's what this passage is meant to teach. To teach that you should have faith and believe that you are important to God. The Lord has time and pays attention to anyone and everyone who believes in him, who has faith in him. In this case, it's both the poor old woman and the wealthy influential man, a woman with a disease, a man with a dying daughter, and the unifying factor is they both had faith, meaning that Jesus paid attention to both of them. God's got time for you. That's what this passage is telling us. All you have to do to get his attention is to what? Is to believe in him, to have faith, and to ask him because he loves you, and because he loves you, he will always, always respond. Okay, that's it for today. What an amazing passage. I love preaching from that. I love speaking about that passage. I've preached from it, I've preached about it a number of times in my life and I've never failed to be encouraged by it and I hope you are too. Can I remind you that my name's Jeremy McCandless and you've been listening to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. The project is to work through the entire Bible. Now, if you're here for the first time, can I remind you that it is hosted on the Bible Project at buzzsprout.com. You subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts from, but that's the place where you're always guaranteed to find the active links to the other places and other resources I make available. It's things like an episode notes page, as well as a full scrum script of everything I've said today, and for each and every episode there. And I'm happy for you to take that and use those transcripts and those episode notes in whatever way encourages you in your personal or even in your public ministry. If you are enjoying this, if you are feeling it's helping you and it's beneficial, then I would humbly ask that you consider sharing it with other people, sharing the link. Really helpful is to write a review wherever did you get your podcast from. And some of you have been prompted to actually support this ministry. This ministry is made freely available on over 30 podcast platforms now and is listened to in over 180 countries worldwide. And that has only been able to be maintained because a select group of people have been prompted by God to support this ministry financially through Patreon. For just a couple of pounds, two or three dollars a month, people have committed to supporting this ministry, thereby ensuring that it stays free and freely available for anyone who might benefit from it. To give more and more people the opportunity to make the decision to have their lives transformed by committing to the study of his word and the revelation of his power by the power of the Holy Spirit. And thank you to them. And thank you all for listening to this today. And I do hope that if you're here for the first time that you will be back tomorrow and you'll join me again as we continue on our Bible Project daily podcast. Bye-bye for now.